Hey, Nikki. Hey, Selena. I didn't get a prompt. <laughs> Sorry. We're here you, now. You think the end of the theme music will be my prompt, Sorry. but it's not. <laughs> Welcome. Hey, y'all. It's a surprise extra sugar. This is one that I pulled together this week while we were doing final prep for our season four finale finale. It is inspired by my realization that we missed a couple of Atlanta references and deep cuts at that. So I know we've kind of been a little all over the map. Like where we feel is LBT capturing Atlanta? Sometimes Mm -hmm. we're like, what? There's none of this here. Sometimes we're like, how did she even know about that? And I think in this case, these were such deep cuts. That's probably why I missed them. So we'll cover those. And then we're going to go ahead and use this as finally as the opportunity to talk about Jilly's. This is another Atlanta deep cut that was referenced mid-season. I did catch that one, but it's a doozy. So I said we come back, and now is that time. So, Nikki, mm-hmm. if you have questions about anything, let me know. Okay. Maybe I'll answer them. Maybe I won't be able to. <laughs> Maybe I'll tell you you're on your own. Maybe. Um, So in this case, what we're going to do is we're going to start with the very last reference, which was both in the name of the very final episode, and it was the resort and spa where they stayed, La Place Sans Suchi. (laughs) (laughs) Close. Help me. (laughs) You got it. A Sans Suchi. Well, you know, for pronouncing it here in the South, it is a little bit more Southern sounding. Is it Suchi, though? La Place Saint-Souci. Souci. Okay. So, more specifically, I am referencing the Saint-Souci part. Okay. okay. I think, I think that LBT may have been borrowing from the name of a disco turn nightclub that was on West Peachtree Street in downtown Atlanta. Sure. So, according to Atlanta... I thought everybody knew that. Didn't everyone? According to Atlanta Daily World, quote, Sans Souci, I'm trying so hard. <laughs> I just want it to be Suchi. It was perfect. Was originally a white-oriented disco club, but after several performances, Atlanta's third world band helped integrate the room, becoming one of the first black bands to play Sans Souci. <laughs> Ultimately, Sans Souci becomes predominantly a black nightclub. Here's what, and that, again, is from directly from that article. Here's what I've been able to learn. For any Atlanta listener, the lounge was specifically not just at West Peachtree, but 760 West Peachtree Street Northeast. That's less than half a mile from the Fox Theater, in case you need a little context there. From Flickr, of all places, I found both an interior shot, which we'll link to, and a description of the lounge. This was apparently on an old postcard that you can purchase on eBay for those who are interested. It featured one of the largest dance and entertainment bands, a 120-foot bar, and a 900-square-foot dance area. I haven't been able to track down exactly when it opened and closed, but I know it was running in the 60s from an ad that someone posted in the Designing Women Facebook fan group. This post is what tipped me off on the place um, to start with, which is also just a plug for that group. Like there's lots of great information that I get there all the time from a lot of really like great fans of the show. So I also know from some FBI files that it was still open as late as May 22nd, 1981, because it is mentioned in the Atlanta child murders investigation. Mm -hmm. This is one of the places Wayne Williams said he was on May 22nd, and this was the first date when he was questioned by authorities. 
That's literally a whole other podcast, but I would highly recommend Atlanta Monster for those who have not listened to it. Finally, I was able to find one significant story about Sansusi. <laughs> Why is this happening to me? Because <laughs> you're overthinking it. I am. Thanks to uh, Booze Geek South. So there, it, they talk about Georgia Governor Lester Maddox. He was a Baptist and a teetotaler, and it sounds like he was cracking down on the nightlife, perhaps with a bit of an Atlanta focus. So not long after taking office in 1967, state troopers raided Sanssouci at 1 a.m. and arrested everyone inside. To boot, citations were also given to anyone on the dance floor. So what exactly had they done wrong? They violated the blue laws by both selling alcohol and dancing on a Sunday. Gosh darn it. So the Sunday sales we've talked about. So we know about those. The other sounded like the plot of Footloose. Footloose. (laughs) But it's true. And I did track back the law. In 1925, dancing in public on the Lord's Day was prohibited in Georgia. So this caused an uproar among nightclub operators because these laws hadn't been... So much enforced, really, in the early Sunday hours, or what a lot of people tend to think of as Saturday Saturday. night. That's right. So the long story short is that Governor Maddox would quickly back down after he angered a lot of the right or wrong people, including some powerful Atlanta folks. So I'll also drop in some smaller but fun mentions and or pictures into the blog post as well. Okay. So that's one. The next reference is from episode 23, Suzanne Gets a Girlfriend When the Ladies Lose Their Minds Over the Not-So-Lesbian-After-All Bar, Mm. Uncle Gertrude's. Mm -hmm. So I think we probably both tried to search for Uncle Mm -hmm. Gertrude's. Here's what we didn't search for. So I ran across an Atlanta Magazine article that mentions, get this, Aunt Charlie's. Oh, Dang it. So, Why didn't I search Atlanta lesbian bars, 1980s? So not a lesbian bar, oh, but it is okay. Aunt Charlie's. And I just can't help but assume that LBT's fictitious name just has to be a clever hat tip. I think you're right. So Aunt Charlie's was a casual neighborhood bar in Buckhead that was open from the mid-70s to the mid-90s. So if you're from Atlanta originally or you live here now, it was at the apex of the Peachtree-Roswell split. According to in-town paper Creative Loafing, it was the, quote, unofficial headquarters of Buckhead Village, and it was owned by Warren Bruno, who closed it around the time the area was, quote, becoming a no-holds-barred meat market. So that sounds fun. uh Uh-huh. Despite his passing in 2012, three of his 12 restaurants are still in operation today. So if you missed Aunt Charlie's and you were like 10, like you and I were, You've probably heard of or been to Ornsby's off Howell Mill, Atkins Park in Virginia Highlands, my old stomping grounds, or Atkins Park Tavern in Smyrna. Here's the thing. It's really hard to track down specifics for a place that closed before the digital era, but the trail for Buckhead is much more findable, and its 90s reputation still looms. So we can drop in an article that speaks to different eras of nightlife in and around the city, and it is very interesting. I thought so, at least. Maybe less if you're from Atlanta, but... It's a pretty wild history. I found a few online accounts, however, that do give us a flavor of Aunt Charlie's um, and what really seems to be a beloved watering hole. So just ask the very active 700 plus members of the Aunt Charlie's and Mike and Angelo's Survivors Facebook group. 
There, someone had uploaded a snippet from an article that ran in the Marietta Daily Journal on December 5th, 1990. And here's what it said. Aunt Charlie's, the great little Buckhead pub, celebrates its 15th anniversary tonight with a big party and all old-timers are invited back. A decade ago, when Billy's and Buckhead across the street from Aunt Charlie's flashed its place-to-be-seen motto, Charlie's management cleverly spun off that with its own motto, the place not to be seen. And I have to tell you, that really resonates with me. And finally, someone did add this comment on Warren Bruno's obituary. Quote, you transformed Aunt Charlie's from a mere bar to the family room of Buckhead. So I do think that gives us some idea of what kind of establishment it was. Like Sans Souci's, Oh, Lord. I found some other small mentions or show-and-tell items, and we'll also link to those from the blog post. Okay. Are you ready? Am I? I don't know. So, hell, this is the main event. The grand finale. The unexpected... Yes? Hold on. Let me find a music for you. Oh, please. Spilly-pop. Do I need to come? Is that it? <laughs> sure. <laughs> oh, maybe. Oh, let's ooh. see what you think. Okay. Let's see what you think. I have been waiting for months to relay this story. So, this is the unexpected reference of all references. For those of you who don't remember and you don't have the script that you're looking at every day, not that I am, that would be weird. Episode 11, we renamed this one, Remember Me Any Way You Like. Here's both that reference and context from Mary Jo's line. Let's go to Jilly's first and eat the whole salad bar and then we'll fill the back of your car with ribs. So, at the time we were prepping for that episode, I did what I do every time. I fired up Google. Sure, I'd find out what we've found out so many times before. Either this thing is not real or it's not findable at all. Imagine my shock then when I stumbled across a 2011 article with this headline, Crime Memory of the Week, The Weird Case of Jillies on Roswell Road. <gasps> Wait, Jillies is real? There was a crime? It was weird? And just like that, sold. So I read on. I was captivated. Jilly's, or Jilly's the place for ribs, its (laughs) full name, was owned by Carl Lewis Coppola, who told the Associated Press back in December of 1982 that he was kidnapped and held for three weeks in a warehouse in his own condo by a business associate and two other men. He was chained, he was drugged, and he was beaten. Oh, gosh. But it was the last line of the article that had me wrapped. That line read, It was certainly not the first Atlanta restaurant or club to be connected with organized crime. Mm -hmm. And with that one line, Nikki, I knew I was going to lose at least two and a half hours of my life to Google. So... My goal is to tell you the story, but somewhere between what that article summed up in one sentence of the situation and then the 97-page appellate court files that I found. We're going way shorter than 97 pages. I'm just telling you, it was real long. This is a complicated story, y'all. So again, Coppola, 
he is the owner of Jilly's, was kidnapped in November of 1982. He called one of the kidnappers a business associate, but his this was a very good friend of his, sometimes even referenced as his best friend. Francis jo- Ford Coppola. Francis. Nicholas well, Cage. That would be a really big story, would it not? <laughs> it would be. It's not that big. Okay. But his friend's name was Joseph Little Joe Cam. Oh, Little Joe. You know Little Joe. I do. Um, six months later, Cam was murdered on May 9th, 1983. He was shot in the head four times, execution style. Yikes. Exactly three years later, May 9th, 1986, Coppola and 12 others were indicted for running a huge Fort Lauderdale, Atlanta-based marijuana smuggling ring. Oh, gosh. I'll go ahead and tell you there's a little cocaine in the mix from time to time, as there is sometimes. Coppola was charged as the ringleader. Over the course of a three-month trial, the government showed that from 1973 to 1986, Coppola led this crime enterprise that funneled marijuana profits into legitimate businesses, concealed his ownership of the businesses, used violence, including conspiring to murder to protect Coppola's interests, and distributed cocaine and conspired to commit robbery. In 1987, he was sentenced to a 55-year prison term. So, where does Jilly's come into this? And do they have ribs that you can fill your trunk with? I would love for them to have ribs for me to fill my trunk with. Right this very moment would be excellent. So, it's one of those legitimate businesses that they funnel drug money into, an investment that Coppola and Cam made in 1978, a year after Coppola moved from their hometown of Fort Lauderdale to Atlanta. You see, Jilly's was Coppola's baby. He ran it and he turned it into a small chain and franchise with four locations open by 1984. This is a side note from that initial, that I said in like a local paper, it's creative loafing again. This is an important side note though. He wanted to make Jilly's a legitimate franchise operation, mm. meaning from what I understand, the other restaurants had no part in the federal investigation. So in all fairness to those franchisees. Okay, so Cam stayed in Fort Lauderdale. He never came to Atlanta officially. He also drew a paycheck, and he got med- medical benefits from Jilly's as well. Things were good. Ribs were flowing in Atlanta. Drugs were flowing probably in a lot of places. And then Cam ran into some money problems and he demanded money from Jilly's. Coppola wouldn't even return his original investment. Cam thought he was being cheated. And, uh, you know, bada bing, bada boom. This is how you go from a lifelong friendship to a kidnapping. The one we've already referenced from early on. Cam and his two partners did ransom some money out of that kidnapping, about 50000 but this is certainly not the payday that he was after. Cam allowed Coppola to call the police when he realized that his partners were close to killing him. They were friends, after all. And after Cam's arrest, Coppola posted his bond and hired his attorney, although if you ask me, this is more CYA than BFF. From here, it sort of turns into... Let's call it the mafiosa version of if you give a mouse a cookie. Uh Uh-oh. So in this case, for Cam, his cookies were more like a boatload of cash for his jelly stock and favorable testimony from Coppola in his kidnapping trial. Coppola, in return, would get audio tapes that Cam had apparently been recording him secretly over the years. Yikes. This was all 
very carefully negotiated through several sit-downs that had now involved representatives from New York and Chicago organized crime, who then also began extorting money from Coppola for the, quote, help they provided in these <laughs> negotiations. From what I read, he spent almost everything he had to pay them oh, off. Oh, no. Now, as I understand it, there were some other things being negotiated at the table, perhaps some of the business ventures, but this settlement between these two guys was definitely in the mix. But here's the thing. Cam, he still wasn't happy. He didn't like the deal, and he refused to give up these tapes, and then he even threatened Coppola's ex-wife and daughter. Oh, gosh. So Coppola hires a man named Daniel Forgioni to kill Cam, probably out of debt. Don't you? Daniel Forgioni. Forgioni. I'm trying so hard not to do it, and I just so. <laughs> Anyways, sorry. It's like the only way I can pronounce the name correctly. Um, but so he hires him to kill Cam, probably out of desperation. But in doing so, he unwittingly sets off a series of events that would be his own undoing. See, before Cam was killed, he told his friend to turn over the 150 hours worth of tapes that he had on Coppola and others to the police. Uh-oh. So according to the Sun Sentinel, quote, the tapes detailed kidnappings, murders, mafia extortions, freighter-sized drug sh shipments, con games, and huge sums of cash laundered through bars and restaurants. Uh-oh. Oh. The paper also notes that these tapes were foundational to the indictment that took down Coppola and the Fort Lauderdale Atlanta smuggling ring. That, my friends, is what you call full circle. But, like, what about Jilly's? What about the ribs? What about the ribs? Here's the thing. I can't tell you when they all went under, but thanks to a glorious Tampa Bay Times article, I can tell you that two were still operational in 1992. Okay. Who was running them, you might ask? Oh, Uncle Sam was. That's right. The federal government, and as they had done since 1986 when all of Coppola's assets were seized. It's not that they wanted to be in the rib business, but they weren't allowed to offload them until Coppola exhausted all of his appeals. Oh, wow. That's fascinating. Uh-huh. So... We know that the government ran it for at least six years through a contractor. Oh, and okay. it's maybe one of the few restaurants that experience, oh, some good old-fashioned government bureaucracy. Uh-oh. <laughs> That's what I was imagining a government. I say one to the other. I was imagining a government wonk sitting in their office being like, I don't know ribs. <laughs> oh, buddy. So here's some really fine examples uh -oh. of red tape at work. Every new hire had to undergo an FBI criminal background check. Now, let me tell you something, Nikki. I've been in the restaurant industry, okay? Um, there's a lot of people in the restaurant industry who probably are not going to pass an FBI background check. So that's thing one. Any changes, say a menu item or to paint the bathroom, had to get U.S. Marshal Service approval. And then they had to take bids if something was broken or if they needed new uh -oh. equipment. Uh -oh. So a roof and an AC repair, according to the source in this story, took six to eight months. Would require congressional briefings. <laughs> That's right. In the summertime. Oh, no. Okay. So, look, y'all, it's even more twisty than what I shared. There's way more to this story. But like I said, 
I was looking for some of that sweet, sweet middle ground. We'll link to more info for those who want it. And just a huge thanks to the Sun Sentinel, Sentinel and those court documents without which this segment would not exist. So what can one conclude from these three Atlanta landmarks of yesteryear? Well, one, crime doesn't pay. It mainly extorts. Two, everyone loves ribs, especially those in organized crime. Three, thank God we can dance on Sundays now. And um, I do think this podcast has at least one thing in common with our friends at Aunt Charlie's. We are also the place to literally not be seen. And that's season four, folks. Look out for our special episode next week. It's the First Wives Club. And don't worry, we don't plan on getting even just everything. You know the drill. DM us, email us, contact us from the website, find us all over the socials. And that's this week's Extra Sugar.